0: Resurrection Sunday, let's pray and we'll dig into the word. Jesus, what a special day, God, um, just to, to wake up to a beautiful morning and think of the women uh, 2,000 years ago going to the tomb before sunrise and, and finding the tomb to be empty. The stone rolled away and um, angels there to greet them, to say you, that he is not here, he is risen. Um, Lord, that is, that's an exciting, true story. That, um, that we felt a little bit this morning when the sun was coming up and the birds were chirping and just uh, the signs of life were outside our doors. And we pray that those signs of life would be brought inside these doors here this morning, that uh, every man and woman and child would be able to say without hesitation, Jesus is alive and he is my Lord and he is my Savior. We pray that your spirit would do a, a radical work of drawing men to himself today, and that uh, men would be saved, women would be saved, kids would be saved today through um, the best proved fact in history that you're alive. We worship you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the resurrection has been uh, termed by scholars the best proved fact in history. Uh, Paul speaks of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Uh, if you'd like to open your Bibles up there, or if you don't have a Bible, you can just lift your hands up and we'll um, the back row folks will bring up Bibles to you. But uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declared to you the gospel, the good news, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The resurrection has been called the crowning proof of Christianity. Everything else that was said or done by Jesus Christ is secondary in importance to him rising from the dead. All of the demons that he cast out, the walking on water, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, uh, the healing of the lepers, uh, all of that, even the cross itself, is secondary in importance to Jesus rising from the dead. Uh, the resurrection is the issue for christians if we had to lay all of our cards on the table and stake it all we could stake it all we could go to the bank uh, to say jesus is risen from the dead here's why if if the resurrection didn't take place then christianity is a false religion all right first corinthians chapter 15 again verse 12 says Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty, worthless. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, worthless. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. So, Paul says that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Christianity is a false religion. Anyone who preaches the resurrection is a false prophet and should be drugged out in the streets and stoned. Uh, We as Christians have no hope. We have only hope in this life. This is it. Eat, drink, because tomorrow we're going to die. Be married. Tomorrow we're dying. And, And we're still in our sins. There's been no redemption. But Paul doesn't end it there in 1 Corinthians 15. He goes on in verse 20 to say, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits or the first one of all of those who've fallen asleep. The world's greatest enemy has always been death, and it's conquered all men. It's been said that no man is wise enough to outwit death, nor wealthy enough to purchase freedom from death, or strong enough to crush death. The grave always wins the victory. And this doesn't just apply to humans, but all things. You know, um, our pipes get rusty. Our our brand new truck gets rusty and the door gets heavy and it starts to sag and doesn't shut right and it starts puttering and sputtering and the tires get flat. It's what Romans 8 calls the bondage of corruption. All right, it's also known as the second law of thermodynamics that every system goes from order to disorder. Uh, everything ends up dying, everything ends up decaying, everything is subject to this bondage of corruption. And in the human world, that results and in, in, culminates in death. Every other man, even the greatest men and the holiest men have died, except for a couple of biblical instances where it wasn't a resurrection, but it was called a translation where Enoch was taken into heaven or Elijah was taken into heaven. These guys didn't die and then rise from the dead. They were just translated into heaven. Um, Every other man uh, has died, even the holy men. You've got Buddha and Muhammad, Confucius, Caesar, Mark, uh, Karl Marx, uh, Pope John Paul II, Gandhi, Zoroaster, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Ronald Reagan, all of these great men have all come and succumbed to death. Heath Ledger, Farrah Fawcett, and Michael Jackson died on the same day. Mr. Rogers, like the guy's like an uncle to me. Uh, he <laughs> bit the bullet. Um, but Jesus is alive. It's true that he died and was buried like all other men, but unlike other men, he came out of the grave, he resurrected his own body, and he emerged from the tomb to be alive forever. Now, when you are out talking to people about how awesome Jesus is, oftentimes you'll ask, what do you think of Jesus? And people will often say, well, you know, he's a good man, Um, seemed like he was pretty nice. Um, He's a prophet uh, and things of that nature. But C.S. Lewis, a famous author, says, you know what? Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or Lord. He staked every claim to be absolute God on the fact that he would rise from the dead. Now, good men can't be liars and good men. (laughs) Good men can't be claiming to be God and then be found false in that and just be, okay, just a good dude that lived a couple thousand years ago. Henry Morris, PhD, said, if all of this is somehow a delusion and if Jesus of Nazareth did not really rise from the dead, then he is no different than any other great man who is also dead. He is worse than they, in fact, because he is thereby branded as either a charlatan or a madman since he staked all his claims to be absolute deity on his promise to return from the dead. So if you come here this morning and Jesus was just some good guy that lived a while ago, but now he's dead somewhere. We don't know where his body is, but he's in a grave over there in Jerusalem somewhere. Um, We're here to tell you today that he can't be a good man. He can't be a good man and be dead because he claimed that he would rise from the dead. He claimed that everything, all of the, the claims that he made point to his resurrection, and if he doesn't come from the dead, he's a charlatan, he's a lunatic, he's a crazy guy. But if the resurrection is really a fact of history, not only are his claims true, but his promises of life for us. And death wouldn't be the victor anymore, but would be the defeated foe. In First Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How, where does living hope come from for us as Christians? It doesn't come in Jesus being dead and entombed in the Middle East, it comes from him being alive, risen from the dead. The resurrection has been called the great vindication of Jesus, it is the great defense against critics and skeptics, the great defense against criticism read an in-depth book that I do recommend for you. William Lane Craig wrote it, and it's called A Reasonable Faith. About 50 chapters that I had to trod through yesterday, and it was good, but <clears throat> my brain blew up yesterday. So He writes this, The earliest Christians saw Jesus' resurrection as both the vindication of his personal claims and as a harbinger or a sign of our own resurrection to eternal life. If Jesus rose from the dead, then his claims are vindicated and our Christian hope is sure. If Jesus did not rise, our faith is futile and we fall back into despair. It's difficult to overemphasize what a disaster the crucifixion was. We watched it uh, last night. to some degree, acted out, as we watched the Passion of the Christ. And we saw the disciples and how disappointed they were that the one who they thought the Messiah was was being crucified on, an, on a Roman implement of execution. Uh, we saw them run away from the garden, and we read of that in the Gospel accounts, that the disciples were, were scared, they were uh, cowards, they ran away, they denied Jesus, one of them, uh, three different times, even cursing, saying, I do not know who this guy is. Jesus' death on the cross spelled out uh, humiliation, and they lost any hopes that they'd entertained that he was actually the Messiah. But a couple days later, the belief in the resurrection of Jesus reversed the catastrophe of the crucifixion. You see, on Friday, they were in despair and they were in fear. The disciples were hiding for their lives, lest someone point them out as a follower of this Galilean, and they would drag them to Golgotha as well to pin them to the tree. So they were hiding. Three days later, they were filled in the streets, declaring that Jesus had risen from the dead in glorious proclamation. A German writer, Wolfhard Pannenberg, writes that the resurrection of Jesus acquires such decisive meaning, not only because someone or anyone has been raised from the dead, but because it was Jesus of Nazareth, whose execution was instigated by the Jews because he blasphemed against God. If this man was raised from the dead, then that plainly means that the God he had supposedly blasphemed had committed himself to him the resurrection can only be understood as God's vindication of the man from whom the Jews has rejected as a blasphemer. The resurrection of Jesus is God saying, I told you once, I'm telling you again, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The resurrection is incredibly special and important to me as it is to all Christians. I've gotten to go to Israel three different times and spend time at Golgotha where Jesus died for us. I've spent times, uh, a year ago actually, I was uh, in the Roman praetorium on the stones that Jesus was whipped and bled upon. And I got to teach this very Bible study standing next to the empty tomb in the garden uh, that Jesus rose from. And so it's, it's super special to me. And as I have owned it and loved it, and you've used it as a great tool to share Christianity with others, I want to entrust it to you to be a wonderful tool of evangelism and declaring the good news of God. And and to do that, I want to give you six main points of the resurrection. I haven't been following OSU football lately, but I remember when I moved over here, there was a defensive end named Ben Terry for the Beeves. He had six fingers on each hand. Uh, Those six fingers no doubt gave him incredible grip when he wanted to catch the football or do a face mask on somebody, right? Um, And so what I want to do to you all is entrust to you the six fingers of evidence that Jesus is risen from the dead so that when you go out to proclaim that God is God and is who he says he is, you can prove it by saying, look, Jesus is not dead. He's alive. I rest my case. Okay, so the first finger of evidence for you is that the resurrection is the foundation stone of Christianity. Without the resurrection, clearly, there would be no Christian church. It would have been impossible for Christianity to come into being, especially in Jerusalem, if Jesus' body was still in the grave. One man said, Tim Keller, the resurrection puts the burden of proof on the non-believers it is not enough to simply believe that jesus did not rise from the dead you must then come up with a historically feasible alternative alternate explanation for the birth of the church you have to provide some other plausible account for how things began why because at jesus's death his disciples were a, were clearly confused, afraid for their own lives, cowering away in different places. Two of them were on their way to the road, or they were on the road to Emmaus. They had abandoned Jerusalem and they'd given up on Jesus. He'd been dead for two, three days. H.G. Wells reluctantly admitted, I'm a historian, not a preacher. But this penniless preacher from Galilee is irresistibly the center of history. And your very presence here this morning bears witness to H.G. Wells's. Um, quote, you know, that because Jesus isn't dead in a tomb, we're all here this morning in a church as the church, worshiping him as risen this morning. Now, we know that the Christian religion exists. If the disciples had not zealously followed up on what Jesus had started, then Christianity would have fizzled out and died at its birth. And so with the consciousness, if the disciples had a consciousness at the bottom of their heart of hollowness and falsehood, the fatigue and the strain of starting a church with a dead Messiah would have been unbearable. There is no possibility that they could have continued on in Jesus's teachings and doctrine. There's a greater, even greater impossibility that others would have been persuaded to follow them in those circumstances, Dr. Simon Greenleaf said. You know, these guys would be going around kind of looking like heroin addicts, kind of scared and kind of tweaking and kind of like, you know, afraid for their lives and be like, hey guys, hey guys, want to come be part of this new religion that we're starting? (laughs) You You know, confused and scared and like trying to start a following. It's impossible but with the assurance that Jesus was alive, they, weren't, they went forth everywhere, boldly proclaiming the truth of the gospel, standing in front of thousands, even the ones that condemned Jesus to death. An earlier Scottish preacher asked a question, how is it that a little group of men in an upper room, ordinary, fallible, blundering men, became the nucleus of a movement that was to turn the world upside down? It was not that they were commanding personalities. Most of them were not. It was not that they had official backing, impressive credentials, or illustrious patronage. Of all that, they had less than nothing. No, it was this, that the unearthly power which at the first had brought creation into being was now at the last inaugurating a new creation in the resurrection of Christ. This power had laid upon them and refashioned their lives as with a second birth. The very spirit that hovered over the waters in Genesis chapter 1 and brought forth creation later on would raise Jesus from the dead and then dwell inside anyone who believe, empowering them to go into all the earth and to proclaim the euangelion, the evangelism, the gospel, the good news from the battlefield that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world and he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead and is the first one of all of us to rise from the dead as well. The resurrection propelled the followers of Jesus out into the streets of Jerusalem and out into the communities abroad. They went out with one phrase upon their lips, Jesus Christ is Lord. And since then, thousands upon thousands upon millions, multitudes have believed in the living Lord. The resurrection is the foundation of the church. And the importance of the resurrection and the preaching of the early church is seen by just scanning the book of Acts. In the list up on the screen there, you see just the references to the resurrection in the book of Acts alone. To the early church, the resurrection was key. It was foundational and then you have the epistles the letters and the writings of the apostles you read those you see that the resurrection is huge as well in the final book of the new testament revelation uh, john opens up with christ identifying as himself as the first begotten of the dead and as the one that lives and was dead and behold i am alive forevermore so one of the great evidences that jesus is alive is that there is a church today All right, there's a church today from a guy that was brutally slaughtered in public in Jerusalem. How did that happen? There must be an explanation. The best explanation is that he didn't stay dead, but came alive and encouraged and empowered the disciples towards mission. Second finger of evidence the predictions of the resurrection and the prophecies of the resurrection. Now, we know that the resurrection of Jesus caught the disciples completely by surprise. There's no indication that anyone was sitting around hoping Jesus would rise from the dead. You don't see that in the Gospels. You don't see them having a bonfire outside of the garden tomb, just waiting for it to happen, waiting. He said he'd said he rise from the dead. Wait for it, wait for it. You don't see that in the New Testament or in the Gospel accounts. The fact is, they didn't expect a resurrection. And when they finally did see Jesus, they were frightened like they had seen a ghost. All this is in despite of what Jesus had told them. And he told them multiple times that he would die, that he would rise again. This is evidence from the scriptures in the Old Testament, as well as from his own words. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus says that uh, it was... um, All of this had to happen. I had to die and rise again and fulfill the things that were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. And there's many scriptures that prophesy in the Old Testament of the Messiah being put to death and rising from the dead. And if the disciples didn't believe the Old Testament prophecies, certainly they would be expecting it from the lips of Jesus himself himself. As he spoke of his betrayal, of his death, of his burial, and even his resurrection. But one thing is for certain the disciples could not have made up or fabricated the story of the resurrection from their own imaginations and artistic creativity. On the contrary, they failed to even anticipate the resurrection after an abundance of prophetic preparation from the scriptures and from the mouth of Jesus, it finally took the strongest of evidences to convince them that the resurrection had actually taken place. We all remember doubting Thomas, right? I just won't believe it. I have to put my fingers into those. I mean, how gruesome do you have to be? Like, really, Thomas? Like, you have to touch the wounds? Like, come on, man. He's like, look, I'm a skeptic and I don't believe that he's risen from the dead. So, what did Jesus say? All right, sicko. Put him in there. The third finger of evidence, since one of my favorites, is the empty tomb. The empty tomb is big, it was the first evidence the disciples had of the resurrection. When you read the account, Peter and John went and found the wrappings. The body had vanished out of them, and the grave clothes seemed to have collapsed in on themselves. The hanky of the head taken and folded and set to the other side. And John twenty, verse eight says, The other disciple came to the tomb first, went in, and when he saw, he believed. You gotta love this account in John twenty. Uh Peter and John hear that Jesus isn't in the tomb. And so they get up and they start running. And, uh, and, you know, Peter gets a little tired. He seems to be the bigger guy. So he starts huffing and puffing and falls behind in the race. John, when he gets there and he sees the stone is rolled away, he stops and here comes old Huffy and he catches up and he goes in first. Finally, when John walks in, he looks over, he sees there's no one in there and the grave clothes have, you know, collapsed inward on themselves. And it says, he believed. He believed. And let me tell you, I've been to Israel three times, and a year ago I was there in the empty tomb, and I'll tell you the same thing that they saw. He's not there, for he's risen. Let these eyes be your eyes, okay? I'm the representative from Prinebelt. No one was there, all right? Wonderful British um, archaeology did studies of the soil inside the tomb, and there's no evidence that any decay of physical matter ever took place in that tomb. Alright, it's in a garden, a stone's throw from Golgotha, it was a rich man's tomb, no one's in it, and nobody's died in there. And no one's dead in there. And so when you see that, you immediately believe, when John saw he believed, his doubts and his fear gave way to an amazed faith. Those collapsed grave clothes yielded no possible interpretation except that the physical body of the crucified Christ had returned to life in a radical form, that it could go through those clothes. Later on, it's going to pass through walls, and it's going to appear out of nowhere. And the linen wrappings had, had been left behind as he entered into this power of an endless life. Now, the empty tomb is so powerful, such a wonderful evidence, that many of the skeptics and critics and the enemies of Christ have resorted to strange and wonderful devices to try to explain it away. The alternative evidence is not that he didn't rise, and it's not that there isn't an empty tomb, but it's that something happened to the body. The, the alternative uh, argument is that, nobody, um, you know, uh, that, that you know, nobody denies the empty tomb, and so the burden of proof is on the non-believer. Let me give you some of these um, strange devices that people have thought up to explain away the empty tomb. Attempt number one, the lie that the disciples had stolen the body. Jewish propaganda did not deny that there was an empty tomb, but instead entangled itself in a hopeless series of absurdities to try to explain it away. And you read of this in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Now, the idea that the disciples, who had been cowards, run away, denied Jesus in his hour and moment of need... Uh, that they had um, stolen the body of Jesus from the tomb is out of the question. The disciples were hiding in fear of their lives, and nothing could have been further from their mind than to go and and lead some kind of a uh, a robbing attempt of a tomb. Uh, The tomb had been sealed, shut. A Roman guard had been set in front of it, and a two-ton rock, some 4,000 pounds, had been rolled in front of its face, In Matthew chapter 27, verse 62, it says, The day after the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pontius Pilate. And they said, Sir, we remember while Jesus was still alive, how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, Hey, he's risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Studies believe that this was some 15 trained Roman soldiers, the green berets, the Navy seals of their day. These 15 men were, were given their order to stand watch, to let nobody steal this body, to let nothing happen. And, uh, and so at nighttime, Two of these men would stand guard on on either side of what they were guarding, and, and the other 15 or the other 13 would sleep in a horseshoe pattern around the entrance to the cave or the tomb. Uh, if anything happened, they could all jump up and be on guard. Uh, and yet we're to believe that these cowering disciples had uh, all of a sudden mustered a bunch of courage, got down a blueprint, written out their you know, battle tactics, and went and took on 15 trained Roman soldiers in the middle of the night. Uh, even nowadays, secular skeptics would say, okay, 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 it was, it's, that's a ridiculous concept. And, uh, and we see that it was all purported by the Jewish authorities anyways in the scriptures. The second attempt that skeptics have to explain away how awesome the empty tomb is, is what's called the swoon theory. All right? The swoon theory suggests that Jesus did not actually die on the cross, but only fainted from weakness. He was then buried with the mistaken belief that he was dead, and when he came back to consciousness in the tomb because of the cool air, uh, he arose and left the tomb. Um, I was watching an interview once with a man up in Seattle at Hempfest, and that man declared the only way that Jesus could have resurrected was by smoking the hashish at the Last Supper, passing out on the cross, and coming to in the tomb. Now, people haven't thought this through, that after Jesus went through um, a five-hour march in the middle of the night... Uh, after he went through three different trials, after he was beaten with rods in the face, had his beard stripped out after he was spitten, after he was uh, scourged 39 times with the Roman flagorum, that's one away from death, and then packed his cross a half mile north of Jerusalem to the place called Golgotha, where his hands and his feet were pierced. He spent six hours on that cross, and then at the end of the day, they said, okay, he's dead, prove it thrust a spear up through his side. The spear went up through his side in the book of uh, the gospel accounts say that blood and water came out. When medical experts look at that, they say, hey, that's an evidence of the complete collapse of the heart cavity or an explosion of the heart. Literally, Jesus died of a broken heart. Okay, and we're going to read that account in just a little bit. But somehow, after he was pried off the cross with a crowbar, and then laid out, after he was buried with a hundred pounds of fragrances and wrappings, placed in the tomb for a couple of days, uh, somehow the cool air just—oh, someone, oh, someone turned on the air conditioning in here. You know, oh, I'm feeling pretty good now. You know, somehow he was able to break out of these wrappings, right? Find his way through the darkness. Find okay. I'm sensing I'm in a tomb, and this must be a see four thousand pound rock in front of me. All right, get the (laughs) pinky under that just right. Whoosh. The gospel accounts say that the stone was found a distance away. That throwing of a two ton rock woke up those Navy SEALs that have been positioned around him, and he went kung fu fighting. Right? He just did a couple of backflips, kicked everybody in the jaw, and then ran off to find the disciples. He gathered all the disciples. Get over here. Come here, I got something to tell you guys. What is going on, okay? We gotta make up a plan. We gotta tell everybody that I rose from the dead, and you guys gotta go to the othermost parts of the earth. Okay, okay, I need a glass of water, okay? It's the swoon theory, okay? Man, we resort to many strange devices to not bow the knee to Jesus as Lord. This swoon theory really doesn't explain how the sight of such a pitiful Jesus beaten almost beyond recognition and weak past endurance by loss of blood from the cross could have excited such a complete transformation in the lives of the disciples and then anyways he must soon die or succumb to the loss of blood anyways. We've got a trauma nurse here in second row, what do you think, huh? Okay, all right. Besides this, there's no doubt that Jesus really did die on the cross. Mark 15, 43 says that when they went to get, Joseph of Arimathea went to um, remove Jesus from the cross. Pontius Pilate was surprised, is he dead already? And normally they would go to the crosses and break the legs of the victims because they would uh, push up on their legs to be able to breathe on the cross or else they would suffocate. So that final blow to the criminal would be a broken leg and they couldn't get up to breathe and they would actually suffocate to death. But Jesus, the prophecy was that none of his bones would be broken. And so he died before then. And so they thrust the spear through to make sure he was dead. And there the blood and the water came out. The third attempt that people try to use to explain away the empty tomb was that Mary and the other women went to the wrong tomb. Okay. I usually make a joke here about women and their directional sense, but... Okay. There's no other tomb in the area. The scripture says that. It was the only tomb. It was a garden owned by a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea, and it says no one else had been buried there. Plus, if the body had been buried, found in or had been buried in another tomb it could have easily been found by the roman or jewish authorities who over the next few weeks were hearing these annoying christians talking about the risen savior why not just go on a field trip and prove to everybody that he indeed is still dead and buried in the tomb something to note about the very first people who witnessed jesus alive is that they were women And that in and of itself speaks to the historicity and the accuracy to the accounts. The testimony of women was regarded as so worthless it couldn't be used to testify in the court of law. They were not um, allowed to or qualified to serve as legal witnesses. If two women watched a man beat somebody to death and they went to court to testify about it, the judge would say, nope, sorry, believe him, not you. All right. So that's the area that's written in at this point. One Jewish text says, hey, happy is he whose children are male, but unhappy is he whose children are female. And yet, historically, it was women that found Jesus alive and found the empty tomb, and the gospel writers didn't change any of that to save face or make it more believable. They said, hey, the fact is that despised women whose testimony is deemed worthless were the chief witnesses, the first witnesses, to the fact of the empty tomb. All right? Um, the third finger, or fourth finger of evidence that I want to give you is that uh, Jesus had many appearances, and there were many eyewitness accounts of him being resurrected. Not only was the tomb empty, but the disciples actually saw Jesus risen. Acts chapter 1 says that for 40 days, Jesus hung around the area as a resurrected man. For 40 days, he gave many infallible signs and wonders to prove that it really was him. It's really me. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, all the people that saw him, he says that he was seen by Peter, then he was seen by the 12, after that he was seen by over 500 people at one time. We are in Primeville. what would it be when 500 people get together to see something? I mean, that is like a Billy Graham crusade in our area, that's like a major event, Right? And so when 500 people say, we saw him alive, we watched him cook fish, we all got to stick our hands in his holes, you know, all that stuff. Like, we know what we saw. Legitimate evidence here. 500 people witnessing it. And and Paul would say that many of them are still alive. He's inviting them to go on out and investigate and and have coffee with these people. What did you see? Set up a 60 minutes interview, all right? Do some investigation and you will find that Jesus was seen alive from the dead. Later on, Paul says that he was seen by James. James is his younger brother. Uh, And James, was, was the records show that he wasn't a Christian while Jesus was still alive. He was one of those guys that's older brother was always claiming to be God. We've been there, right? Okay. You know, my sisters are here this morning. What what would you, what does it take to convince you that I'm God? All right. I can levitate. All right. You know, that's who James lived with. Always trying to live up to that older brother, you know, like, hey, I was born when mom was a virgin, you know, it's like, ah, not that story again, you know. But we see that after the resurrection, he appears to James and something happens in James' life and the other brothers. Paul would say, don't I have a right like, uh, like James and the other of the Lord's brothers to take along a believing wife? In the book of Acts, we see that James was one of the pillars of the early church. He was one of the leaders in Jerusalem. So something happened in James' life through his whole life. Older brother, weird God guy, doing all this strange stuff, finally executed then rose from the dead, and now, man, I am all in. Completely believe my older brother's story. Paul would later on say, then he was seen by me as one who was born out of due time. So really, 13 separate occasions that the disciples saw Jesus after he'd risen from the dead. 13 recorded occasions in the scriptures. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, to the other women, to Peter, to two on the road to Emmaus, to 10 of the disciples, to all 11 disciples eight days later, to seven disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, to 500 followers at one time, to James, to the 11 at the Ascension. He was seen by Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He was seen by Paul in Acts chapter 9. Paul did not have a vision. He had a legitimate um, appearance of Jesus and other people that were around him heard what was going on. Uh, He was seen by John in the book of Revelation. So historical information. Uh, If this was a lie, the Bible wouldn't list the eyewitnesses and say, hey, go double check it. Which brings us to this next attempt to explain away the resurrection. and And it has to do with these eyewitness accounts. That would say, that the accounts were merely all hallucinations or visions or perhaps induced by drugs or hypnosis or hysteria. In other words, these people are crazy, they're all on a bunch of drugs, they're smoking something, and so don't believe anything they have to say. Well, uh, Henry Morris, to quote him again, uh, says, Such hallucinations, if that is what they were, are quite unique in human history and warrant the most careful psychologic scrutiny They were experienced by a large number of different individuals all seeing the same vision, but in different groups at different times both indoors and outdoors on a hilltop along a roadway by a lakeshore and other places furthermore they were not looking for jesus at all several times they didn't recognize him at first and at least once actually believed it was a ghost until he convinced them otherwise he invited them to touch him and they recognized the wounds in his hands they watched him eat with them on one occasion over 500 different people saw him at one time most of whom were still living at the time when that evidence was being used morris goes on to say the vision or um, hysteria theory is quite impossible and therefore the numerous appearances of christ must be regarded as absolutely historical and genuine this fact combined with the evidences of the empty tomb renders the resurrection as certain as any fact of history could possibly be amen A hallucination is just a projection of the mind. It cannot be anything that is not already in the mind. And to understand Jewish history and to understand what the Jewish concept or even the secular pagan concept was of a resurrection. This idea that a resurrection would take place in the middle of history was completely foreign to the disciples. Even when Jesus was telling them about it, they did not get it. They didn't comprehend it. For the Jews, they believed the resurrection would take place at the end of the world. At that last great final resurrection They had no idea that it could even be possible in the middle of human history. In fact, when Jesus went to raise Lazarus from the dead, he's like, hey, he's going to rise from the dead. And and Mary says, yeah, I know, at the end of the age, he's going to rise from the dead. He's like, this is what you're doing, this is what I need you to do. Bam! Woo! There he is, resurrected, All right. People didn't have this comprehension, and the disciples didn't have, that it wasn't in their mind. So they couldn't hallucinate it. With that, we have this fifth finger of evidence, the witness of the apostles. It's completely impossible that the apostles could have preached and written as they did unless they were absolutely certain and convinced and under deep conviction of the truth that what they had seen had actually happened. Uh, This uh, reasonable faith book that I read said the the sincerity of the disciples is attested by their suffering and death. The original witnesses of the miraculous events of the Gospels passed their lives in labors and dangers and sufferings voluntarily undertaken in attestation to and as consequences of the accounts which they delivered. They voluntarily submitted to great dangers and sufferings and labors. They offer this miraculous story which they proclaimed wherever they went that the resurrection of a dead man whom they'd accompanied during his lifetime was a crucial interval part of the story as uh, Simon Greenleaf we'll find out who he is in a second a skeptic turned Christian said this doctrine that the apostles asserted with one voice everywhere they went not only under the greatest discouragement but in face of the most appalling terrors that can be presented to the mind of men their master had recently been uh, perished as a malefactor by a sentence of a public tribunal his religion sought to overthrow the religions of the whole world. The laws of every country were against the teaching of his disciples. The interests and the fas- and the passions of all the rulers and great men in the world were against them. The fashion of the world was against them. Propagating this new faith, even in the most inoffensive and peaceful manner, they could expect nothing but contempt and opposition, revilings, bitter persecutions, stripes, imprisonments, torments, and cruel deaths. Yet this faith they zealously... Did propagate. And all these miseries they endured undismayed. Nay, they endured them rejoicing. As one after another was put to a miserable death. The survivors only prosecuted their work with increased vigor and resolution. The only... The annals of military warfare afford scarcely an example of the like heroic constancy, patience, and unblenching courage. They had every possible motive to review carefully the grounds of their faith and the evidences of the great facts and truths which they asserted. And these motives were pressed upon their attention with with the most melancholy and terrific frequency." In other words, these men had subjected themselves to radical suffering, loss of possessions, loss of limb and life, and loss of family members. Preaching with the cost of the loss of their possessions and intense persecution, finally they would lose their lives, but keep preaching as long as strength permitted and breath was in their lungs." Sosthenes, who was a Roman historian, said punishment and persecution was inflicted on the Christians as a class of men given to a new and mischievous miracle. What was that new and mischievous miracle? Preaching the resurrection of the dead, such a foreign concept to the world. And so they were punished. They lost everything they had to speak of this truth. A writer named Vernet thinks it inconceivable that one of the disciples could suggest to the others that they say that Jesus had risen when both he and they knew the precise opposite to be true. This leads into just the thought of the lives of the apostles being this next finger of evidence. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 30, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? He's not talking about a game show. He's saying if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, how come we are suffering Every hour, loss of limb, loss of life, loss of family members. The resurrection is evident in their deaths. All of them were killed except for John, who was boiled alive in a vat of hot oil, lived through it, and was secluded to the island of Patmos by the emperor Domitian. All of them were killed except John. Simon Peter was killed by Nero after being crucified upside down. Studies say that his insides were pressed out of his mouth This was right after Fox's Book of Martyrs says that he watched his wife be crucified in agony. And he would shout out to her, remember Christ, remember Christ. And then it was his turn. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross outside of Odessa. Fox's, Fox's Book of Martyrs says not only did he not deny that Jesus had risen from the dead, but he witnessed to people that passed by on the road that Jesus had indeed conquered death. James, the son of Zebedee, was killed by Heragrippa I by by the sword. Uh, Philip was put in prison and scourged and eventually crucified. Bartholomew was cruelly beaten and then crucified. Thomas and Matthew were both both thrust through with a spear. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned, refusing to deny the risen Savior. Jude was crucified outside of Odessa. Simon was crucified Paul was beheaded in Rome, Matthias was stoned in Jerusalem and then beheaded because he denied to refuse uh, refused to deny the resurrection of Christ. Pascal says, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. These men that continue to say something happened in the midst of facing death and persecution and torture preach a message to be believed. We have, if that's not good enough for you, testimonies of additional authors and scholars. A man named McCulloch wrote out seven criteria for the testing of a historical hypothesis. Those, that, that test can easily be applied to the hypothesis that God raised Jesus from the dead. Josephus was a credible historian who worked for the Roman government. This was not a 13-year-old boy with a blog. He, had an established, he was an established researcher for emperors. He was born a few years later after Jesus had risen from the dead. He was there while other eyewitnesses were still alive. And he writes in his Testimonium Flavium from his book, The Antiquities, this. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct to this day. Here's a man that was there and was present at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. He was Titus's historian, taken slave as a, as a Jew, but made a historian to the Romans. He was a man who was alive while the church was birthed. He was a man who was alive while Christians were being persecuted and they took the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. And he says, these people saw Jesus alive from the dead. Thomas Arnold was the professor of history at Rugby and Oxford. He looked at the combined evidences of the empty tomb, the numerous appearances of Jesus, the change in the disciples, how they became bold and brave. He looked at the authenticity of the records and the testimony of 2,000 years of Christianity. And this is what conclusion he came to. He says this, I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better, fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God had given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. I ask you today, are you a fair inquirer? Will you come in here with open hands and say, Lord, whatever I have from past belief, past tradition, past assumptions, past presuppositions that I'm holding on to, that you would have me let go today, that I might see you as risen and alive and true in everything that you've said. If the Lord proved today that he was risen from the dead, would you surrender your life to him? Would you surrender your life to him as Lord as that he would be your master, that everything he says you would do in obedience just because he says so, because he's the God that came and lived and died and rose again from the dead to show he is right and he is true? Are you a fair inquirer? Would you look at the evidence? Would you hear even these um, kind of our contemporaries or you know, closer than, than some of the ancient manuscripts? Dr. Simon Greenleaf was the professor of law at Harvard University uh, Dr. Simon Greenleaf uh, was one of the greatest legal minds that ever lived. He wrote a famous legal volume entitled, A Treatise of the Law of Evidence. I've read it. It's good. Dr. Simon Greenleaf believed that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a hoax, a myth, a lie. And he determined once and for all to expose the myth of the resurrection. After he went to work and thoroughly examined the evidence for the resurrection, Dr. Greenleaf came to the exact opposite Conclusion, and he wrote this book entitled, are you ready for it? It takes two breaths to say it. An examination of the testimony of the four evangelists by the rules of evidence administered in the courts of justice. And in that book, he emphatically stated it was impossible that the apostles could have persisted in affirming the truths they had narrated had not Jesus Christ actually risen from the dead. According to the jurisdiction of legal evidence in a court of law, Dr. Simon Greenleaf came to claim that the resurrection is the best supported fact in all of history. And not only that, Dr. Simon Greenleaf was so convinced by the overwhelming evidence, he yielded his life to Jesus Christ as both Lord and Savior. Not enough? John Singleton Copley Known to have one of the greatest legal minds in British history. He was the Solicitor General of the British government, Attorney General of Great Britain, three times High Chancellor of England, and elected as the High Steward at the university in Cambridge. He held in one lifetime the highest offices ever pointed to a judge in Great Britain. And he said this very simply, probably in a British accent too, I know pretty well what evidence is, and I tell you, Such evidence as the evidence for the resurrection has never broken down yet. Lord Darling, the Chief Justice of England, you got to love him. He's tough enough to wear pink and tough enough to call himself Lord Darling. (laughs) Lord Darling was once the Lord and Chief Justice of England who said, no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. Dr. Frank Morrison was a lawyer who'd been brought up at the feet of such well-known atheists and skeptics like Oxford professor Matthew Arnold and also the biologist and evolutionist Thomas Huxley. Both of his mentors openly denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Dr. Morrison's testimony can be found in this book, Who Moved the Stone? He felt he owed it to himself and to others to write a book that would show the lie about Jesus and permanently dispel the mythical story of the resurrection. In looking through all the evidence, he came to the exact opposite conclusion that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. So he wrote a book, not the one he started out to write, but a different one called Who Moved the Stone? in which he defends the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis, we all love him because of his movies, The Chronicles of Narnia. But they were books before that. Just found that out. No. Um, C.S. Lewis was the former professor of medieval and renaissance history at Cambridge University. He believed this, I quote, Christians were dead wrong. He couldn't have been further opposed to Christians and this gospel that they preached about this God who died and rose again. The last thing he ever wanted to do was embrace Christianity and become a Christian. But in 1926, he writes this in his journal, The hardest-boiled of all atheists I ever knew sat in my room at the other side of the fire and remarked that the evidence for the historicity of the gospels was really surprisingly good. All this stuff about the dying God, it almost looked like it had really happened once. He says, to understand the shattering impact of it, you would need to know the man who has never since shown any interest in Christianity, if he, the cynic of cynics, the toughest of the toughs, were not, as I would still have called it, safe, where was I to turn? Was there no escape? So, after Lewis evaluated the basis and evidence of Christianity, C.S. Lewis concluded that all other religions had no such historical claim as Christianity. His knowledge of literature forced him to treat the gospel as a record and trustworthy account. He says this, I was by now too experienced in literary criticism to regard the gospels as myth. Finally, contrary to a strong stand against Christianity, he was forced to make an intelligent decision. He says this, You've got to picture me alone in that room at Magdalen, night after night, feeling that whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him, who I so earnestly desired not to meet, that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me, in the third term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and I knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England, wrestling with the overwhelming amount of evidence. Don't you love that? That the evidence says a decision has to be made. And even to this day, there's so much evidence that the skeptics have to just say, we don't know how to explain it. They've, they've said, okay, you know, the, the swoon theory, okay, the empty, you know, the uh, the women go into the wrong tomb, hallucinations, those aren't legitimate arguments. We don't know what to say about the resurrection of Jesus. Funny how Jesus says, here's your sign, all right? You want a sign? Here's your sign. I'm going to die, and in three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. There's your sign. How about you today? You want a sign? You want some great crazy thing to like happen in- Jesus says a wicked and adulterous generation is always looking after a sign. I'll give you one. And it happened 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem when a man that claimed that he would be God, that he was God and that he would rise from the dead actually rose from the dead and was witnessed by over 500 people. There's your sign. What are you gonna do with it? I'll tell you this. If you deny him today, if you turn your back today, it's not because you haven't been given evidence. It's because you're hard hearted. It's because you want another God. And you know what? I think you want yourself as God. It's not going to fly. You're going to be sorely disappointed. Today, in his mercy, he has brought you here to show you how much he loves you, all that he went through, to show you the proof. And man, it is his grace that you are in this this room today to to see evidence that he's true. What are you going to do with it? In John's gospel, Jesus says to Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asks her, do you believe this? And then he asks you today, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Have you put your trust in him and rested in him and that his perfect life, his perfect death has been put into your account so that you, and you'll you never do it. You'll never live a perfect life. You already know you failed on that. His perfection can be placed in your account. His death can be placed in your account. The wrath that was upon him can be placed in your account so that you don't have to suffer the wrath of God. Will you rest in that today? Just as if you were out in the Pacific Ocean and your boat tipped over and you're sitting there holding on to the side of a boat. And I come up on this, you know, in a a big old Coast Guard craft and I say, hey, we're here to save you. And we lower the crane down and all you have to do is just receive the salvation, receive the crane and be lifted out of the water. Will you rest in the crane that is Jesus Christ? Will you trust in the crane who's come for your salvation to lift you up out of the miry clay, out of the muck, out of death, out of sin, out of destruction? Will you rest in the one who gives your life meaning and purpose? The resurrection, man, it gives your life meaning now and purpose. It means that things don't die. And you know you've been wondering that. You've been putting your head on your pillow at night and you know there's more to life than this. You know there's more than just dying and being eaten alive by worms or eaten by worms dead, I guess. You know there's more than that, and you've been wondering that. There is. There's eternity. Is Jesus dead to you? Do you picture Jesus as just some man 2,000 years ago, did a bunch of stuff, now it's dead, now we're kind of separated. You know, uh, he, he doesn't really think about us. or cons- That's deism. That's thinking that there's a God, but he's not directly involved with his creation. That's not true. Jesus is directly and intimately involved with his creation, so much so that he became one of us to show us how much he loves us. He knows you by name. He thought of you on the cross, and he longs for you to to receive what he's purchased for you. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Do you believe in your heart today that Jesus is risen from the dead? That can only happen if God puts it there. That can only happen if God calls you. Right now, if you're sensing that there's this nudging and this urging towards faith in Christ, man, surrender to it. Succumb to it. Bow the knee to it. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. Have you ever confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? Now, anybody can do that, right? If you speak the English language, Jesus is Lord. Look what I just did. Oh, amazing, we're going to heaven, right? We know that there's more that Paul was saying than just that. A confession of Jesus Christ is Lord and a belief in the heart will lead to a life lived out, obvious that there's true belief in your heart, that Jesus is your master and that he's alive. We're accountable to him. We're in relationship with him. We're gonna have the worship Team, come on up. Hugh Dermot McDonald said Christ didn't come to supplement you at your best, but to redeem you at your worst. In the end, it's not cheer that you need, but salvation. It's not help, but rescue. It's not a stimulus, but a change. It's not a tonic, but a life. You need to know today that you're not just getting by. You're utterly failing apart from Jesus. You're what the Bible calls in a state of depravity. You're an enemy of God and the wrath of God abides on you. But God who is rich in mercy sent his son to die for you while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies. He loved you enough to come and lay down his life for you that when you hear the message, you'd bow the knee to him, that you would receive his gift of eternal life. And right now, all you need to do is surrender. Right now, all you need to do is receive the gift. You came through those doors today, a sinner, the wrath of God upon you, destined for hell. And God has called you today to come out of darkness and into his marvelous light. To come out of the grave and come into victory and power today. Power that he has won and made available. To come out of sin and bondage and corruption. And and you know your life is, is ruined right now. And he is calling you today to come out of that. And into a life of promise. A life of hope. A life with a future. An eternity. In paradise. With the God who loves you and created you. but you must receive. You must believe in your heart that Jesus is your Lord. You must surrender to him. You can confess today that Jesus is Lord and that he's risen from the dead. And when you do that, the Bible says that you are born again, that there was a heart of stone in your chest that God took out, and replaced with a heart of flesh that now beats and knows God and can have relationship with him and commune with him. Today, I urge you to turn from your sins and to turn to Jesus. He's alive. He's calling you right now. I urge you today to receive forgiveness of sins remission of sins that you would be washed clean the psalmist says that the lord has separated you from your sins as far as the east is from the west that's how far he's removed your sins from you if you would come to christ today he would remove your sins and make you white as snow but there must be a response for those of you that have never been saved that call is for you. For those of you that are not Christians, that call is for you this morning. For those of you that would call yourself Christians but have no external fruit of a relationship with the living God. Rather, your life is marked by rebellion and disobedience and doing what you want to do. Your brothers and your friends around you would say, I'm sorry, Jesus isn't your Lord. You are your Lord. Or he or she or they or it are your Lord. But Jesus isn't your Lord. You've been deceived. You've been religious at best. And Jesus is calling you today to respond to the living God, to repent of selfishness and building your own kingdom and to come and to be part of his kingdom. Those of you that are Christians, that are walking in an intimate walk with Jesus Christ, your life is his life. With me today, you can celebrate that he is alive and he's not dead, he's not in corruption in some grave over in the Middle East, but he's at the right hand of the Father and he ever lives to pray for us. He sent the Holy Spirit to be with us that we wouldn't be orphans, that we can walk in the power of this endless life. Either way, all three groups today can rejoice in this last song that Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death, Death has no sting. Hell has no victory over us anymore. But those who would reject the message this morning, you would reject the evidence, you would reject the sign. You still await...